Well, good morning. I'm I'm sick. Who gave this to me? Which one of you was it? I want to know. Well, yeah, which one wasn't it? That's probably the better question. I thought I escaped it. I thought everybody else got it, and I didn't get it. And I was starting to celebrate in my mind. And of course, here we are. Uh, let's pray. Uh, we're all going to need the Lord's help this morning and every morning. So let's pray. Lord, I'm just so impressed by this uh, body of believers that in uh, 30 below weather and darkness, uh, early in the morning, they would rise and they would come to worship you. Um, God, in, in one respect, it is no great thing that we do because you're worthy of that. Um, so Lord, take all that we have this morning as our offering of worship, even the effort and the struggle maybe that we went through this morning just to be here. We give that to you because you are first and foremost in our hearts and in our life. We offer ourselves to you. Uh, Lord, be with our time, be with us in our time in the word. Um, God, help me to uh, keep my thoughts together and speak all the way through here. And uh, God, help us to learn something to be challenged where we need to be challenged and comforted where we need to be comforted. Um, God, I know that uh, the topic that we're on this morning is not everybody's favorite topic, but you put it in the word because it was important for us. So may we accept it and rejoice where we need to. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, if you'd open your Bibles to Second Thessalonians 2, uh, we're going to be doing verses 1 through 12 this morning. Um, 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12. One of the Christmas gifts that uh, our kids got this year was a computer game that I have no doubt many of you are already involved in, and it's called Minecraft. Yes, some of you are playing it right now in church on your... Uh, We installed it on our computer to uh, get it up and going and to get it running. And I'm not... I'm a little bit of a computer guy, but not really, just enough to sort of be dangerous and once I installed it I got this error message that said that we had an outdated driver for our video card so that it didn't want to load the game I hate these kinds of error messages and um, so I began to look around this is after all was a Christmas gift and we wanted it to work and so I began looking around for some kind of helpful tool to figure out what the deal was and And I found what I thought was a helpful diagnostic tool that you could download to help you identify uh, the correct driver or whatever updates that you need. And to the dismay of computer geeks everywhere, I downloaded it. I was fooled. And normally I'm pretty good at this kind of thing. I don't usually fall for these. I see them generally. You you can kind of tell. But this one was very good. And it fooled me. And so I ended up downloading a piece of software loaded with spam. And uh, I think we're through. I think we're done getting all of the little pop-ups. I think we've got it all cleared out. But nevertheless, this one fooled me. And fortunately for Aiden, uh, for New Year's Eve, we had a bunch of people over and uh, several friends who were computer geeks, and I mean that with all affection, Uh, and they had us up and going in no time, and so that was good. 
Um, but the passage that we're looking at today in Second Thessalonians cautions us not to be fooled by the program of the Antichrist. Not to be fooled by the program of the Antichrist. And Paul tells us specifically what we should be looking for so that we will recognize the legitimate day of the Lord when it comes and be able to distinguish it from the Antichrist and, and his false program and so that we will not be fooled by any imposter. That's what Paul has for us. And overall, the big picture, he doesn't want us to be fooled in several areas. He doesn't want us to be fooled in false teaching or false Christs or false hope. Or by any fear or by any counterfeiting. And so the, the bullet of this message is, hey, Christian, don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. Paul wants us to be adequately prepared for the Lord's return. And unfortunately, a lot of times when we focus on or we look at eschatology or we talk about the Lord's return. A lot of times we kind of run one way or the other. Some kind of spin off into wild and rampant speculation about dates and times and systems and the identity of the Antichrist and all of these kinds of things. And others of us, and I would put myself on this other side of the end of the spectrum, my temptation is to say, ah, who cares? I, I don't know how it's all going to work out. I'm confused. It's difficult to figure out, and I can easily become one of those pan trippers, you know? It's all going to pan out in the end, right? And that's that's a position that I can sort of fall to because it's just too complex. But this passage isn't given to us so that we would run away with um, speculation and it's not given to us so that we would be scared. It's given to us so that we would be adequately prepared for the Lord's return. The focus is on preparation for ourselves and for our loved ones. It's not a focus on speculation. So that's what we have. Let's look at 2 Thessalonians 2.1. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. This verse should sound familiar to you. We read it last week. We looked at it a little bit. And so the first point that I'll draw out from this is don't be fooled by false teaching. And Paul is specifically encouraging the Thessalonians here. You haven't missed Christ's return. We've talked a lot about the day of the Lord over the past couple of months. But if you haven't been been here for any of that or or you've missed some of it, I'll define it again for you. The day of the Lord is a broad theme throughout the scriptures that uh, describes Jesus return to gather Christians to himself And then to judge sin and sinners, those who have rejected Jesus Christ. And so in that respect, it is both a good day and a glorious day that we look forward to. And it is also simultaneously a horrific day as those who have rejected Christ will face judgment. And as you know by now, if you've been following through First and Second Thessalonians, false teachers had followed Paul and Silas. Uh, into Thessalonica. Remember Paul and Silas? Uh, we learned in Acts 17 had faced some persecution there. And in fact, they were forced to leave and they went on to Berea and then ultimately, or then to Athens and ultimately uh, into Corinth. Um, but false teachers had kind of followed in behind them and they began to teach that the day of the Lord had already come. That's where their teaching uh, kind of went to. 
And as we talked about last week, that created some real problems for the Thessalonians. After all, they are those who have faith in Christ. And if the day of the Lord, the day which is to include the gathering together of God's people to himself, if that's already happened and we're still here, you know, that's kind of scary. Maybe we haven't gotten things just right. Maybe we're not genuine believers. Maybe we're not saved. And so they began to be wrestling with some of that, which Paul assured them of last week. Or the second one was maybe this persecution and these trials and this tribulation and stuff that we're experiencing. Maybe this is God's judgment and his wrath being poured out upon us. Well, Paul encouraged them last week. No, no, that's not what you're experiencing. And so really the beginning of of this passage is a corrective It's to correct the false teaching. He assures them that the day of the Lord hasn't already come. And then he's going to give us a a little bit of a sequence of events, not so that we would know everything, but that they would know enough and that we would know enough so that we wouldn't face false fears. And so the beginning of this is a corrective. Paul doesn't want them to be fooled by false teaching. And I want to just kind of camp on that for just a second and talk about how do we protect ourselves from false teaching? How do we protect ourselves from being fooled? I started off by talking about downloading this not-so-helpful software. I was fooled by what was an imposter, what looked like the real deal. How do we do that with regard to false teaching? And, you know, the the answer is so simple, you're going to be annoyed that I'm giving you the same one we always give you. It's, It's obvious. We have to know the real deal. We have to be in the Word. Every teaching that we hear, we bring back to the word of God and we say, does it correspond to the inspired, inerrant word of God? If it does not, then it's false and it should be rejected. But we test everything by the word of God. And that's, in fact, the encouragement that Paul gave uh, to the Thessalonians back in chapter 5, Thessalonians 5.21. He said, test everything, even in that case, that which was coming to them by way of prophecy. Test what is being said, even by the mouth of a self-proclaimed prophet. Test it and see if it squares with the scriptures. Uh, And this is something also that in the book of Acts, Dr. Luke, uh, who is the author, affirmed, particularly in the life of the Bereans. The Bereans are that group that Paul went to right after his time in Thessalonica. Remember that? They were kicked out early. Because of persecution, they fled to Berea. They began their ministry there, began teaching, and were given these really encouraging words in Acts 17.1. It says this, uh, Acts 17.11. Now, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. And they're commended for that. Uh, I love that passage. They were eager as they received it. Yes, we want to learn. And then they took that eagerness back to the word and said, this is true. Does it square with the word of God? Um, So that's a great example for you and I today. Something else I want to just to even make this a little more relevant. One of the concerns I have for the church today is that we can dial up every kind of teaching we want to hear. Uh, I can search uh, teaching on a particular topic from somebody whose particular slant of theology fits my own. On really any any subject, any of a number of subjects across the spectrum. 
And that's great that we have access to teaching. That's good. Um, But one of my concerns for the church today is that it would begin to treat what we can download instantly as our primary source of instruction. Or that we would even begin to treat Sunday morning teaching as our primary source of instruction. Friends, your primary source of instruction is your time in the word of God. You need to be skilled at handling it, knowing how to read it, how to study it for yourself, how to go through the amazing experience of discovery when God shows you something that you had never seen before and the Holy Spirit takes it deep into your heart and convicts you of something meaningful and you need to deal with it. We need to know the word of God from our first-hand encounter. Our primary source should be our own personal study. And we need to square everything that we hear with scripture. There's some resources that I've listed in your handout this morning. If you flip it over, I think it's on the back side. <clears throat> I think there's too many notes on the front to, for it to possibly be on the front side. But a couple of books, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. is an excellent book on interpretation and just how to be skilled at reading the word. Uh, how to read it book by book. And then there's another one there by Walt Russell that our college group is going through right now. Playing with fire. Same thing. How do we become skillful readers of the word of God? And these are just a few references that, uh, that you might uh, take a look at. Also, Pastor Adam regularly teaches a Sunday school class about once a year on how to better read your Bible. And if you all need to take it, you all need to go through it. It's very, very good. Um, and so next time it comes up, I'd encourage you to sign up for that. Excuse me for just a second. This could be a short message. Could be two parts. Um, so overall, Paul encourages them. Hey, you haven't missed the, the, the day of the Lord. And then he goes on to give them a couple of signs that must occur before the day of the Lord happens. And so that brings us to our second point. Don't be fooled by a false Christ. You will know the return of Christ because it will be preceded by specific signs. Look with me in verse 3. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worship, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. And so we're given two specific signs, two specific indications from Paul here. The first is this. There will be a rebellion and a falling away. Uh, the Greek word for, uh, for this rebellion here, that, or that's translated rebellion in the NIV, is apostasia or apostasy, right? Uh, it, the word can mean either a political revolt or a religious uh, rebellion or revolt. And unfortunately, Paul says almost nothing about it here. He just says, sort of matter of fact, this will happen. And you kind of go, ah, if I had hair, I'd be pulling it out. Tell us more, please. What will this look like? Um, And I think Jesus also spoke of this. In fact, uh, in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, in fact, I think this is a passage that should be read side by side with Thessalonians because the two help us fill one another in as they work through the same kind of material and the same kind of question. And so actually we're going to look just a little bit at what Jesus said about this rebellion to kind of fill in our picture just a little bit. So at Matthew 24, 9, if you'd go there real quick. It says this, then you will be handed over to be persecuted and to be put to death. 
And you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith. Here we go. This is the apostasy. And will betray and hate one another. And many false prophets will appear and will deceive many. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. The reason I go to that passage is because Jesus is addressing the exact same issue with the disciples about the day of the Lord and what will be the signs of his coming. What will they not be and and what will they be? Now, unfortunately, I'd have to say this apostasy or rebellion or a turning away in my mind isn't a very clear sign. Because as I look at the world, it seems to be kind of the general trajectory for, I don't know, for forever. Uh, Apostasy just, you know, that's where we've been since the fall in a sense. And it seems that we're just kind of in that steady course of decline. And we can see it just in the last couple of decades we see the rise of islam and other false religions we see the spiritual darkness in europe the apathy there uh, the decline of christianity in the u.s such now people are discussing the term post-christian era and suggesting that that's where we are something to be discussed uh, recently in fact twice now i've been handed the same article once in a newspaper clipping and and once online about uh, the newest growing church. It's an atheist church. And actually, it's not an atheist church, but it's about 40 of them. It started in the UK and now has come over to the United States. Uh, and in November 10th, the Los Angeles had their first uh, atheist service. It attracted hundreds of people. And uh, I'll just read you this short clip. On Sunday, the inaugural Sunday assemblies... Assembly in Los Angeles attracted several hundred people bound by their belief in non-belief. Why wouldn't you just sleep in, you know? (coughs) I thought about it this morning. I know you all did too. Similar gatherings in San Diego, Nashville, New York, and other cities have drawn hundreds of atheists seeking the camaraderie of congregation without religion or ritual. They are clinging and claiming proudly to the name of a godless church. A godless church. That's what they're proud of. Boy, if that doesn't sound like apostasy and end times kind of stuff, you know. So on one hand, I I hear, you know, I I read this and I think, oh, yeah, there'll be a general rebellion and a a falling away. But it doesn't seem to be terribly clear to me. Although as I read, as I read what Jesus says about it, it seems to be driven by much more than just apathy or alternative beliefs or whatever. It seems to be driven largely by persecution, hatred for Christians, and rampant wickedness. It seems to escalate uh, to a point. But all in all, by itself, I would say um, this rebellion is not the clearest sign. Um, By far, the clearest and the most concrete sign that's given is the next one that Paul gives. And he says, the man of lawlessness will be revealed. And I would just point out, it's when you see the two signs together. That's a clear moment. It's like getting longitude and latitude. It's a crosshairs. When when we see a rebellion, and I would say by reading Jesus, one that is based upon uh, or driven by persecution, and subsequently the man of lawlessness revealed, then you know the day of the Lord is upon us. And it's close at hand. Look at, uh, where are we here? Verse 3. 
Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for the day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Um, So once again, it's when we see these two signs in conjunction that we know the day of the Lord is near. The Antichrist, one thing I want to show you here, I want to point out is how quickly Paul downgrades him. Do you see this? How, how quickly does he do it? In the next breath, he does it. The man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. Just right there, right on the heels of it. Uh, he makes his fate clear right at the beginning. And I remember who Paul is speaking to. He's speaking to the Thessalonians, those that have been afraid. They've been whipped up with fears and speculation, thinking they've missed the day of the of the Lord, thinking maybe that they hadn't been resurrected, that they hadn't been uh, raptured. Maybe they're not believers. All of these kinds of fears that they they have going on. And so Paul is very clear to tell them, no, no, it's off in the future yet. This is what it will look like. And as he begins to speak about the man of lawlessness, which is sort of a scary title, Very quickly, he says, the man doomed to destruction. His fate is sealed. He is absolutely doomed to fail. And I like that he says this by way of comforting uh, these scared Thessalonians. Then he gives us sort of three indicators about his his ministry or his his ministry. Uh, His false program. The man of lawlessness will oppose everything that honors God. Well, that's pretty clear. Not hard to figure that out. Uh, he will exalt himself in the temple of God. Now, this is where a lot of debate and discussion sort of picks up. And um, the question a lot of times comes over, is this a literal temple or not? Uh, and uh, I take the position that this is a literal temple here. I think that's a plain reading of the scriptures. And, and I'm committed to a, l- a literal hermeneutic. In other words, I'm going to read the Bible as literally as that specific genre is intended to be read. So when I read in the Psalms that God will hide us under the shelter of his wings, I don't attribute, I, you know, I don't think of God as, as a bird or having feathers. I, re- I realize this is poetry. So I'm going to read it as literally as poetry allows me to. Or if I'm reading the Proverbs and it says something, I'm not going to take it as a promise that is absolutely true. It's a principle of what is generally true. That's a proverb. But when I read a a New Testament epistle, a letter from Paul, and he speaks about a temple, and he doesn't qualify it in any way, well, I'm going to read that literally. This is a literal temple. And I would remind you that at the time of Paul's writing in AD 51, the temple, Jerusalem, is still standing. And had he meant anything other than a literal temple, he would have to have qualified it for the listeners. And so some people take that there's a metaphorical temple here. I don't know how they get to that. Um, I think a straightforward little reading of an actual temple here is required. Um, in addition to that, the word that he uses for temple, the Greek word is naos. And it's, it's, it's a specific term. It refers not just to the temple in general. It refers to the holy place. The holy place within the temple. It's a very specific reference. And it's the same word that Jesus uses when he speaks about this as well. Uh, he speak, when Jesus speaks about the Antichrist standing in the holy place 
uh, of the temple, creating an abomination. That same abomination is foretold by the prophet Daniel. And so I see a literal temple here, which, which tells me something very interesting. What this tells me is that before the Lord returns, before the day of the Lord, we should expect to see a literal temple in Jerusalem rebuilt. Um, that's, I, don't, I don't know how to come to any other conclusion. That seems to be what this is saying. I, I also want to tell you, with regard to eschatology, I have a different level of surety of my uh, interpretation than I might in other, in other areas. And I just think that's right and wise for us to be humble about these things. Because this is a difficult genre, and it's hard to figure everything out. And I think if God wanted us to know absolutely everything down to the minute detail, he would have made it absolutely crystal clear. And it's not. It's not. But he told us enough. The other thing we learn about the false program of the Antichrist here, not only will he oppose everything that honors God, he will exalt himself in the temple of God. Um, and he will, if I can get the button pushed, there we go. He will proclaim himself to be God. Um, this won't be subtle, can I just suggest. Um, I can remember just throughout my short lifetime, see how I'm calling myself young there without any shame. Uh, the amount of speculation as to who this Antichrist might be. And I'm sort of, I have to say, embarrassed for the church at its willingness to just throw names out there willy-nilly. Remember Gorbachev? Remember that one? I remember thinking, oh yeah, the scar on his head. <laughs> then, then, so, then it was Ronald Reagan. I think Ronald Wilson Reagan is the name, and some people were identifying. Oh, there's six, na- six letters in each one of his names, 666. That's the mark. He's the one. And Bill Gates. And, you know, and people just go, they just, it's like they pick names out of the hat for arbitrary reasons. And I, I look over the history and I think, boy, Hitler or Stalin or Mussolini or these guys. I mean, lots of people sort of vie for contention here, I suppose. Um, and I just want to say we're wasting our time when we speculate about dates and times and when we speculate about the identity of individuals. We're wasting our time. We haven't been told these things so that we can speculate. We've been told so we can prepare. So that we can prepare our hearts spiritually so that we would be right with the Lord. Ready at any time. And we've been told so that we would prepare others, those that we love. We would share the gospel with them so they would be ready for the Lord's return. And so I just want to tell you, when you see doomsday prognosticators and speculations about dates and times and people claiming that the, the end is here and the apocalypse is upon us, even from well-meaning Christians, I want to tell you, don't be fooled. Wars and conflict and earthquakes and famines, Jesus calls all these things the beginnings of birth pangs. Uh, they're just the Braxton Hicks. Right? That's all they are. And so Jesus hasn't left us here to focus all our energy and speculation on, on these things, but to be prepared. Um, about six weeks ago, I talked to you about a, a, a man named Harold Camping. Remember that? A man who had uh, falsely predicted the return of Christ six times. And the last time he did it, spent millions of dollars uh, in promoting the, the date. Um, Harold Camping died December 15th, just just this last month. And uh, 
I, I'm not trying to be insensitive to him or, or to anybody else, but it's interesting to me that for all of the time and the energy spent, spent in spe- speculation about the return of the Lord, his personal eschatology came up first. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you and I are not guaranteed tomorrow. Sturdy blowout. We might freeze to death on the way home. Uh, we have enough to worry about there. We have enough to worry about there. Thirdly, don't be fooled by false hope. Be prepared for persecution. Many of you in the room uh, may hold to a position uh, known as pre-tribulation, which is that uh, the Lord would return for the church prior to the tribulation period. In fact, probably most of you hold that opinion, um, and I respect that. I don't. I hold to what's known as a pre-wrath position, which basically says that we will go through a lot of trial and, and tribulation and persecution before the Lord returns. And I think the scriptures bear that out. I hold that loosely, but that's kind of the conclusion that I've come to. Uh, but if you do hold to um, the pre-tribulation rapture view, I want to I remind you and encourage you by this. You need to be prepared for persecution. The Bible says it will happen as we read the Olivet Discourse, right? Jesus talked about it. Daniel talks about it. Paul talks about it here. Um, and so just you may hold to that view, but I want to tell you, be prepared. Be ready. It seems to me that things get a lot worse before they get better. And I think everybody agrees with that. Um, Jesus tells us that the activities of the man of lawlessness will, in, will include great persecution on the people of God. And Daniel says this, he says in Daniel 7.25, He will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times, and half a time. And so while we may hope for a pre-tribulation rapture, it seems to me as I look at the primary texts that Christians go through much of the tribulation and persecution and suffering and even martyrdom before the day of the Lord and the gathering of his people. And so we should be prepared for persecution. Look at verse 5. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. But the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. Okay, interesting fact here. The power of the lawless one, that same power that will empower him, is already at work amongst us. It's, it's already influencing us. And actually, I don't think that's hard to believe at all. But we are told that this power is restrained. And it's restrained by someone. The trouble is, once again, Paul doesn't tell us who that is. Who is restraining this this power? Um, All kinds of theories emerge on this. As I was studying this week, I found seven, I did seven, seven different ideas of of who who might be restraining uh, this kind of work. Everything from the Roman emperor, the Jewish state, law and order itself, the gospel, the Holy Spirit, the church, or even an angelic figure. Well, who does Paul say it is? He doesn't. That's, that's who I take it to be. The one Paul says. But he doesn't say. 
And I, and I want to tell you, as we, re, as we read our Bibles, as we interpret, we need to have the courage at times to say, I don't know. And the Bible doesn't say. And that is being faithful to the text. What's not being faithful to the text is adding and supplying where the Bible doesn't provide. And that's dangerous. Uh, the Bible doesn't say who this uh, restrainer is. And, and as I've said before, I think it's actually gracious of God to keep some things hidden from us. Because if we knew every minute detail of everything that was happening, of every program going on, I think we would just implode. I don't think we could handle it. Um, but we are told that at some point the restrainer will be removed. Um, and whatever way the restrainer limits this power already at work, it will be removed. And that will allow the lawless one to emerge and to begin his counterfeiting program unfettered, so to speak. And then, once again, Paul very quickly, again, almost in the next breath, uh, shows how he will be overthrown by Christ. Um, again, the temptation is to speculate on, well, who is this? Who might it be? Uh, or the Antichrist. Who is this Antichrist and who might it be, this man of lawlessness? I, I ran across a great quote as I was studying by Michael Holmes in one of the commentaries that said this, it is ironic that some people get so caught up in speculation that they end up giving more attention to the doomed Antichrist than to the victorious Christ. Isn't that good? And Paul gives his attention to Christ. He says when he returns, he will overthrow him by what? The breath of his mouth and the splendor of his coming. Uh, and I, that is the kind of reassurance that Paul wanted to pass on to the Thessalonians. Not all of the dates and times in the minutia, but the absolute confidence that Jesus wins. Don't be fooled by fear. Jesus wins. Verse 8 says, and the, and the lawless one will be revealed to whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. I think it's a great reminder that the lawless one, though he will be a terror upon the people of God, is no match for Jesus. It's not even close. It's not a tug of war. It's not, even, it's not even a battle. He's destroyed by the breath of our Savior. Um, finally, don't be fooled by counterfeits. Don't be fooled by counterfeits, either now or in the future. Look at verse 9. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie. And all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth, but have delighted in wickedness. This is a sobering passage for sure. One of the things we're told right at the beginning is that um, this lawless one will work in the same kind of way that Satan works. And we've talked about this before. The ways that Satan works. Uh, three things, three primary tools of Satan. Deception. Accusation. And temptation. Uh, a good good mnemonic device to remember them. D-A-T. Dat is how Satan works. If that works for you. Deception. 
accusation and temptation. And we're told that this lawless one will work in the same kind of way. And we see it laid out for us. Power, signs, and wonders will be used to deceive. In other words, when we're looking for the return of the Lord, don't be looking for powerful signs and wonders and miracles and things. That will be part of the counterfeiting program of the lawless one. John Stott has said, that, has said this, the coming of the lawless one will be such a parody of the coming of Christ that many will be taken in by the satanic deception. We're also told that wickedness will be used uh, to deceive, just as it is now. Uh, I think sin is a good um, synonym here for the word wickedness, and sin, as we know, is the opposite of love. We talked about last week how um, the primary teaching of Jesus is love. Uh, in other words, as we become followers of him, more and more, what is produced in us is love. That was his curriculum. That was the curriculum of Christ. And sin is the opposite of love. And sin typically, almost always, presents itself as a shortcut to what is right and what is good. In other words, instead of working for our money, we would steal it. And instead of the more difficult work of self-giving love, we would be tempted to lust. Instead of, instead of telling the truth because it's difficult or painful or hard or humbling, we would lie. Sin is almost always the shortcut to the real thing and the good thing and the thing which is the loving thing to do. Uh, and sin and wickedness... Uh, as we learn, are the opposite of love, the shortcut and the way to circumvent the way of Christ. And so these powers and these signs and these wonders, they'll be used to deceive. Um, sin will continue to be used to deceive just like it always is. But then, then Paul makes a very startling statement here at the end. And if it didn't shock you, it should have. Verse 11, it says, For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion. So that they will believe the lie. And so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. Man, is that a hard teaching or what? I was wrestling with that this week, praying over it. Poked my head into different pastor's offices. What do you think this means? I might be too sick on Sunday to preach. You might have to cover this. And the nearest I can come to an answer on this is, is this. That God tells us that he will ratify rebellion. And he will do that with a powerful delusion. In other words, they've already rejected the truth. They've already indulged in the wickedness and the sin. They've already taken the shortcut. They've already made a willful act. And because they're in that place, God will send them a delusion to ratify that decision and hold them in that place for a place of judgment. Man, that's hard. But that is what it's taught. And we saw God did this to Pharaoh, didn't he? Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then God ratified that hard heart. And kept him there. In Romans 1, we see that we see a rebellious, sinful people. And then we're told God gave them over to their sin. We're also warned throughout the scripture. Today, if you hear his voice. Don't harden your heart. Because it seems to me 
that God is willing to ratify our rebellion. If you're a young person and you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, you know what, I'm going to follow Jesus someday. But not yet. I've got my wild oats to sow. I've got my rebellious things I want to do. I've got to get it out of my system. I warn you. I caution you. God tells us that he will ratify rebellion and judge it. You may not have an opportunity to get out of it. You may cling to and love your sin. Uh, I've told you this before. This picture from the, from the movie Lord of the Rings is Smeagol is falling to his destruction with the ring in his hand, right? My precious. And that could be any one of us. The time to turn from sin is now. The time to turn to Christ is now. The last thing I want to just kind of wrap this up with is sort of for the church at large, not necessarily Bethel, not necessarily you, but maybe. Uh, One of my concerns for the church with regard to eschatology is that I think at times it creates apathy rather than an appetite for ministry. Um, I think there's a large number of conservative Christians who are, I'll say it, wimping out on ministry because they're going into their shell. Uh, They look around the world, they see globalization and economic crisis and wars and what they perceive to be a dwindling church, and that may be right. They see growing state control, and the result is they've sort of accepted a defeatist mentality. It's all going to pot, nothing to do. And I think a lot of conservative Christians are content to sit back and complain on social media with their arms crossed and with a grumpy look on their face. The end is near, the Lord is coming, let's hunker down. And that's where the Thessalonians were 2,000 years ago. And I think what we need to do, as Paul is sort of encouraging them here, we need to prepare ourselves for the next hundred years of ministry. The Lord may come back in ten, that's true. But I think we should be ready for the next hundred. You know what I'm saying? Not not just defeated, not, or not just resigned to the fact that the return is coming, so why bother wasting our time? We should be busy for the kingdom of God. Really busy. When Jesus comes back, if he comes back sooner than than I think he's going to. I want to. I want myself. I want to be neck deep in ministry. I, I want to be pulled away. From trying to pull people to Christ. That's what I want to have happen. Let's pray. Father this is a big topic. It's tough to touch on on a single Sunday. Uh, but we appreciate what the Apostle Paul does for the Thessalonians. He he assures them and he encourages them that they haven't missed anything, that when you come back, it will be clear, it will be conspicuous, it will be obvious. You will take us to be with you. Uh, Lord, we know there are certain events that must occur, a rebellion, this emergence of this lawless one, but we're encouraged to see that you have it well in hand And you will destroy him by the simple breath of your mouth and the glory of your coming. So we find confidence and we find assurance. But God, may that not lead us to apathy. May we have the courage to figure out how you're directing us in ministry. And may we get our hands dirty and be busy about saving people for the kingdom of God with the great gospel of Jesus Christ. God, don't let us waste our time in meaningless speculation, but help us to be prepared ourselves and to prepare those that we love for your sure and certain coming.
We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.